Welcome to season two of the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs telling us their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hey, everybody, it's Conrad Weaver. I am back for the second season for the My Story podcast. I took the last couple months off, well, actually about six months off, as things got really busy for my day job. Uh, Many of you know that I'm a film producer, so I've been working on some new documentaries and the distribution of my new film, Heroine's Grip, which, by the way, is available on Amazon on Prime Video. So if you want to go over there and check it out, Check it out on Amazon's Prime Video. It's a little shameless plug for Heroin's Grip. I'm really excited about this new season of the podcast. I've got some amazing, amazing people lined up and uh, interviews that I've recorded over the past couple of months, and I can't wait to share them with you. And just to let you know, I'm always looking for new connections with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs. And so if you know someone you think would be a great interview, a good fit for the show, I would love it if you'd make a connection, make an introduction, send me an email, introduce me, introduce them, and hey, we'll see if we can get them on the show. That's how how that's how this works. And I'd love to... Uh, Get your friends and your connections on the show, people that you want to hear their story uh, right here on the My Story podcast. Hey, and if you enjoy these podcasts and think that more people should listen, well, I do too, give me a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the visibility of the show and gets other people interested in listening. So and then if you would just share this episode right now, share this episode with a friend or a couple of friends, send send a text message or an email or through a Facebook post. I'd love it if you'd share it with someone. If you think it's valuable, if you think it has information that uh, other people should hear, go ahead and click that button and send it to a friend. I'm so excited that the My Story podcast is now available on Stitcher. If you're listening on the Stitcher app, please give me a shout out, leave a review, let me know. I'm glad that we're expanding the reach here on the My Story podcast and am excited to have that uh, out there on Stitcher. So today on the show, I have, I'm honored to feature my interview with Jed Medifin. Jed is the president of the Christian Alliance for Orphans organization, uh, otherwise known as CAFO, C-A-F-O. And he's the president of this organization, and he's done so many things. Prior to his role at CAFO, he served in the White House as a special assistant to President George W. Bush, leading the Office of the Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. And he did amazing things there at the White House. Prior to that, he's held a range of posts in the California State Legislature, He helped establish the California Community Renewal Project, which strengthens nonprofits in some of the state's most challenged communities. He's studied and served and lived in more than 30 countries with organizations ranging from Price Waterhouse in Moscow to Christian Life in Bangladesh. He's written many articles. He's authored four books, including his most recent book called Becoming Home. And He lives right here in the Washington, D.C. area with his family, and uh, it's been a privilege to get to know Jed over the last number of years. And so today he's right here on the show. And so here is my interview with Jed Medifund. Well, welcome, Jed, to the My Story podcast. Thanks so much for coming on board today. So glad to join you. Yeah, so it's been, uh, you and I met uh, a number of years ago, I guess, through CAFO, the Christian Alliance for Orphans, right? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. And uh, I remember attending that event back in, oh my, it was three years ago in Orlando. And I was uh, part of a team from my church who came to Orlando for the conference or for the summit and uh, just was blown away by the things. I mean, I had never really been in exposed to a lot of uh, information or teaching or training on dealing with orphans. And so that was my first really exposure to 
this uh, uh, critical uh, issue. And I know you're a part of that and have, you know, been doing this for a long time. So tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do so our audience can get a kind of a handle on that. Sure. Well, you know, the Christian Alliance for Orphans is a coalition of a number of different, about 200 different organizations that are all living out their faith in service to vulnerable children from kids in local foster care here in the U.S. to orphaned and vulnerable children all over the world. And each of these organizations do great work on their own independently. But through CAFO, we're able to coordinate shared efforts where all of us are working together for outcomes that are bigger than any of us could achieve alone. And so some of that is kind of externally focused, really trying to inspire uh, the church to be God's first answer for kids that are lacking the protection of family, stepping up as adoptive and foster families and mentors and, and serving and caring for kids in other ways as well. And then some of it is internal, really helping um, improve the quality and effectiveness of the work of Christian ministries and churches that are serving vulnerable children. And uh, just with the goal that, that, that as Christians, we won't only be known for being passionate people with a lot of care for, for children, but that we are doing this in some of the most effective and innovative ways uh, in the field. Well, you know, you know, I want to get more into the state of what the orphan situation looks like around the world. But first, I want to kind of get into what motivated you to go down this path and and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah. Well, you know, Conrad, there's always so many different threads that God weaves in, in your own store. And I look back on a lot of different things that long before I would have imagined myself in this role, I think God was, was preparing and weaving together. And um, for me, one of those threads was actually right after I graduated from college, um, I had been planning to go to law school, had been accepted, everything was on track. And then um, speaking with a number of uh, folks who had gone into practicing law in large firms, uh, just every one of them seemed to be not excited about their work. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, of course, today know many people who are using their gifts and law degrees in very meaningful ways. But boy, that scared me and, and made me think, okay, I don't want to just go this, down this road thoughtlessly, come out with a lot of debt, have to take a big, well-paying job, and then wake up, you know, five or 10 years later wearing golden handcuffs. And so uh, I had three great friends and the four of us together decided to at least initially defer graduate school for a year and spend that year instead living with committed followers of Christ in many different parts of the world. So in Central America, Russia and Africa and India and, and other places. And uh, long story short, this journey, as, as you would imagine, was just a life shaping experience, sure. both um, wow. the time with these these three uh, close friends of mine. There's there's still some of my very best friends. And that was incredibly rich and meaningful, but also being exposed to faithful followers of Jesus who within their own cultures were living out their faith in very vibrant and compelling ways. And, and one of the ways that we saw that uh, just shining were Christians who were serving orphaned and vulnerable children within their own communities context there. And so, you know, even though this was not something I did uh, initially uh, after that, uh, that God was, I think, wedging just a, a mm. concern for and a love for these precious kids uh, that eventually would take the form of being able to, to be an advocate for them working alongside many other uh, Christians, both here in the U.S. and around the world. And so spending that, uh, was it a year that you spent abroad? A good like part that? of a year, yeah. Okay. What was the biggest surprise for you in that? You know, one of the biggest was that um, I think for the four of us, you know, a, a large part of what motivated us was, you know, we wanted to live with adventure. We wanted to live what we called mm. an epic life. Uh, you know, that's mm. the language of a 22 or 23 year old <laughs> young man. Right. right. And um, and I look back on that and I don't think we were. Um, off on our desire to, to, to live for things that were larger than just our ourselves and, and, and that were more than just kind of climbing a corporate ladder or retiring on a golf course someday. You know, that desire was right. But we were, I think, mistaken in where we thought we'd find it. We thought it was in always pressing to some new adventure, some new kind of extreme experience and, you know, and, and uh, you know, going from this place to that. And, and what we really discovered is, you know, no matter how crazy a place seems when you first arrive there, how exciting it is, um, you, you, it very quickly that adrenaline fades away and, and it really becomes an ordinary place, whether you're in the jungles of mm -hmm. Africa or in the frozen tundra of Russia or anywhere else, the, the adrenaline fades. And mm -hmm. so the, the you're, you're left with this realization, we're, we're not going to find epic life just by fi continually pressing to new places, new places. But what we did see is that people were living very 
extraordinary lives amidst ordinary circumstances within their own countries, within their own cultures, as they learned to follow Christ in those ordinary places, as they learn to love their neighbors well and sacrificially and put the needs of others above their own. That is what we came to conclude was where this life to the full is found, not in some next big adventure, but in learning to live well right in the place where God's put you. Wow. I think that's something that every one of us can, you needs to hear and learn and understand. Yeah. That yeah. It's 20 years later and I feel like I'm still learning it, but I am, I am mm -hmm. so grateful for the gift of, of not imagining that I'm going to find that somewhere far off in some, you know, big change of life that it has to be mm -hmm. found and then lived right here in the ordinary places. Mm -hmm. So it's more than just, you were more than just going off to quote unquote, find yourself, right? It was, you were looking for that, that great thing. And, and I think you found that purpose, would you say? Yes, I, I really would. You know, and, and of course, not that we came away with all the answers or, or any of those things or, or were mm -hmm. able to perfectly apply what we had learned. But I would say that, you know, that kind of the conclusion that as 23 year old guys, we came away with which is that realization that the life to the full that Jesus promised isn't found in some high adrenaline venture or constant change or, you know, any of those things. It is, it is found in just being a humble, loving, self-giving person in the midst of ordinary places. And we saw some wonderful examples of that. And uh, I'd say we've been seeking uh, in our own imperfect but meaningful way to, to grow into that more and more uh, over the last two decades since that time. So you've had quite a bit of experience uh, in the world uh, and around the world since then. That's right. What was that, that, that path like for you? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I ended up from there, long story short, um, when we returned, I, uh, I had been planning to go to law school, had deferred for a year, but ultimately the four of us together had just felt so impacted by the people that we had spent time with and wanting to tell some of these stories and, and share some of these things that we experienced that we, we felt a sense of shared calling to try to write a book about this. And we didn't know the first thing about mm -hmm. writing or publishing or any of that, but uh, long story short, we moved up to a cabin in the mountains because that's right. What, what you, what you do when you're going to try to buy, write a book, right? And uh, sure, the four right. of us ended up writing a book together and it was picked up and published called Four Souls. And uh, and then we ended up doing some speaking and different things around that. But uh, ultimately, I ended up going into the political realm. I, it wasn't, again, mm. what I was necessarily planning on, but had an opportunity to work in the uh, office of a state legislator in California, work on some campaigns, and then ended up working for many years in the legislature in California, and then uh, mm -hmm. came out to Washington, D.C. to work for President George W. Bush, at helping uh, lead the faith-based and community initiative for him, and very much loved that that work in, in government and in politics. I believe there's uh, wonderful and, and very important work to be done in the political realm, and uh, and, it, and certainly good people are are needed there as they are anywhere. So what would you say is maybe your highlight for your time at the White House? Oh, there were a lot of highlights. You know, certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest, was just getting to work alongside some of the the most uh, remarkable people that I've ever met. You know, people who are extremely talented and sharp, but at the same time, very um, substantive people, thoughtful people, people mm -hmm. who wanted to use their gifts well for things of, of lasting impact. Many of them uh, Christians and many of them not. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the myths about Washington, D.C., is that uh, it's full of people who who just want to be rich and powerful. And, you know, mm -hmm. there's certainly many people who have been corrupted uh, in the process of, of politics. But I would say that most of the people who go into politics, most of the people who move to Washington, D.C., do so because they really want to make a difference. They want to use their gifts and skills to make um, a difference for good in this world. And, and of course, I certainly wouldn't define good in the same way as many of the other people here. We disagree perhaps, you know, very deeply on the best path and what's going to be best for our nation and what's going to most enable people to thrive. But um, most of the folks who who move here do so because they want good and they want to make a difference. And that's that's a fun environment to be in. And of course, the White House in many ways is the epicenter of that or, or one of the epicenters of that. And so it's just a privilege to work alongside and learn from and with uh, people who are like that. You know, just I've had the privilege of being on Capitol Hill numerous times doing interviews with various you know, senators and Congress 
you know, people in Congress and this, the buzz, the energy that's there is, is palpable. Yes. You know, you walk the halls and you can just feel that there's things happening and, and it's exciting. Yes. Yes. And um, there can be something, you know, there, the, the, that can be dangerous about that in the sense that it, it can be sure. intoxicating, right. And to feel you, you, right. you know, you, you imagine that this is so, so important. It's so much more important than anything that's going on anywhere else. And, and that's why I do feel like it's really, really good for people to not stay in the belt way, you know, when we speak of inside mm -hmm. the beltway here, um, not to stay mm -hmm. there for uh, indefinite periods of time, but to, um, you know, to, to work here for time and then be in other areas. And I actually, you know, over the past uh, decade after we, we had lived on Capitol Hill during the time I worked in the White House, but then um, we moved back to California, rural California. Um, and that's, that's where, where I'm from. from. Right? My, my parents and brothers and, and uh, sisters-in-law and relatives still live there. And it's it's a wonderful place. It's a, a humble place in many, many regards. But mm. I feel like there was um, something very good and clarifying about spending most of the last uh, nine years living there, even though I have had the privilege of working on issues related to, um, you know, global matters and, and uh, national advocacy to be based there, I think was um, helped remind me that, you know, the, the most important things in many regards are not what happens uh, in Washington, D.C. It's, it's what happens amidst ordinary lives uh, lived out in public schools and churches and neighborhoods all over the country. And, and I think that's, you know, a lesson that, that probably many of us who live in Washington, D.C., and I count myself in that again now, uh, need to be freshly reminded of on a, on a fairly often frequent basis. Right. I know I've had the privilege of traveling out in the western parts of the country at times and you're speaking to people in rural areas and they say sometimes, you know, I think the people in Washington, Washington D.C. forget mm -hmm. that we're out here mm -hmm. and, and they're not really connected to our issues and our what's going on in our yeah. on the ground. Yeah, you know, that, that's really true. And it, it does happen. I mean, it, it and it's funny because I think people mistake and think that that people who are in, you know, in Washington are cut of different cloth, that they're not uh, human in the same way that, that they're, um, you know, people in Washington, D.C. are ordinary people, too. They um, so right. so they're, they're actually not more devious or more cunning or more mm -hmm. self-absorbed than than other people necessarily. But they can forget um, what life in the heartland is like. And so those are important reminders, I think. Sure. So you, you went from working in policy and working in the White House, working, you know, on, on really important issues like this. How did you make the move then to becoming the head of CAFO? Yeah, well, um, you know, while I was working in the White House, uh, the faith-based and community initiative was uh, the work that I was a part of. And we were really trying to reform and shift the way that government addressed deep human needs. So, you know, whether we're talking about uh, you know, homelessness, returning prisoners, uh, global HIV. Uh, the faith-based and community initiative was an effort to shift our method of problem solving from models that, that kind of centered and hubbed in Washington, D.C., focused on kind of uh, the large machinery of government delivering the services um, to instead saying, you know, the center of transformation in these communities and lives has to be local organizations, uh, local nonprofits, including faith-based groups, but not just faith-based groups, th those organizations that are rooted in communities. We want to put the center there and the central focus there. And what Washington can do potentially is help to, you know, encourage that work um, where, where appropriate government can partner with those that work, but the, the most important work has to be rooted in the community. It can't just come from from Washington. And so we were we were engaging that and, and really seeking to reform all federal efforts to address human need with that vision in mind. A big part of that work had to do with vulnerable children. Um, there mm -hmm. were a number of mentoring programs. There were uh, the president's. Uh, HIV work, AIDS work in Africa, PEPFAR had a large orphan and vulnerable children focus. Um, there was uh, the adoption tax credit that was doubled under President Bush and other things. And so a big part of my portfolio had to do with that. And I was I loved working on those issues. As, as I mentioned, they were very close to my heart. Um, and I and actually my wife and I at the time also we had two biological children, but we were thinking about uh, having number three. And then we just really felt a shared sense of calling to adopt and to, to bring a child into our family that, you know, otherwise would grow up without one. And so this, all these things were very much in my, my heart and mind. And so as uh, the, the Bush administration was coming to its end and we were passing the torch uh, to, to the new guys who were coming in to replace us, um, I had the uh, invitation to step into this role to, uh, mm -hmm. at the time, the Christian Alliance for Orphans was just a loose coalition 
of organizations that served vulnerable children in different ways, adoption agencies, foster care organizations, and then global orphan care organizations all working together. And I was, I was very impressed to see these ministries that in many ways were natural competitors with each other, but they were working together. And, mm-hmm. and as I saw, they were, they were accomplishing more together than any of them could on their own. And so I was very impressed with that. And when they asked if I would be uh, someone to, to come in and give full-time leadership to this, uh, this work together, I thought, wow, what could be a greater privilege than to, to get to pour myself into that? So that's what I have done ever since uh, the end of the Bush administration. So what are some of the, the big issues, challenges that these organizations face and, and that vulnerable children face around the world? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, you have both similarities and differences between issues in the United States and globally. Um, you know, speaking in the United States, there's about 450,000 children on any given day that are growing up in the care of of the government. Uh, They are wards of the state. They're in the foster system. They've been removed from their families through no fault of their own. They're not juvenile. Almost a half a million. That's right. That's right. Wow. And and they need love. That's the Mm. number one thing. They need something government alone can't provide. And in some cases, that looks uh, like a new family. About a quarter of the kids in the system are waiting to be adopted. They need a new forever family. And then about three quarters, uh, the hope is that they can be cared for temporarily and then be safely returned to their biological family. And uh, while that won't be the case for all of them, uh, the, the hope and prayer is that they, they will be reunified. And so the need there is for people willing to step into their lives um, as foster parents or perhaps in other contexts as well as mentors, as what's called a casa, um, and and be a temporary loving presence uh, in their lives. And perhaps as a mentor, a lifelong, you know, a permanent mm-hmm. uh, relational presence there, even if they're returned to their biological family. And and then, of course, there's, there's wraparound needs around that. So it's, you know, even if you're not called to adopt or foster or mentor, mentor, uh, there is much need to both support the uh, adoptive and, and foster families that are caring for these kids, as well as uh, for some to work with the biological families that are trying to reunite. And so what we often say is, you know, not everyone is called to foster or to adopt, but everyone can play a part in this vision, living out what the book of James calls the pure and undefiled religion that includes caring for orphans and widows in their distress. What are some of those things that just the average person can do now? Yeah. Well, you know, um, there there really are uh, within many, many churches around the United States, a growing number of people who are fostering or adopting out of the foster system. But what's really needed just as much is what we call wraparound support for those families. So I'll just give a personal example. When, when my wife and I, uh, this was a couple of years back and our foster care agency called and said, hey, we've got a, a newborn that was actually a preemie born uh, eight weeks early. And he, he needs a home right right away tonight. And we were not anticipating that. Our youngest child at the time was four. And so we didn't have any, you know, any baby stuff. And yet we wow. sensed that this was God's invitation to us. And so we welcomed this little guy home. But, um, you know, in the this, this kind of big chaotic day of his arrival and all the different needs that came with that, um, people in our church heard about these needs and began showing up at our house with, you know, with a little tiny baby onesies that would fit his tiny little body and with the formula we needed for a preemie baby and with uh, diaper cream and with, you know, a diaper genie and with a mm. tiny little car seat. And, and actually they continued to bring meals over the next several months, um, you know, several days a week to help us along that journey. And so I will say, not only was that, that help very, very practical, it was, it was something we, we just, wow, that help was immensely useful. At the same time, it, it told us, hey, you're not alone in this journey. Even there's, you know, there's times when it is very difficult or frustrating different ways, but, but we weren't walking that alone. There was a church community walking that with us. And, I, and I, so I think that is just an immense gift. And it's a truly necessary gift that those who are fostering or have adopted or caring for vulnerable children or their families in different ways need that wraparound support. Hmm. So with these, you know, almost nearly a half a million vulnerable children here in the U.S., does that include what's going on at the border? It it doesn't. Um, That would, uh, you know, that would add another layer to that. And some of those children um, have actually been placed into foster-like context, some some in group Hmm. homes, some in actual foster care you know, where they're in the home of a, of a welcoming family, 
until they, um, you know, kind of their longer term status can be determined. So uh, that has that has added uh, to the needs within the system. And, you know, I want to ask this question, and if you choose not to go down this path, that's fine. We can we can edit that out. But what do you think is the answer to that crisis at the border? And what should we as followers of Christ be doing? Yes, that is a big, big question. And I, I certainly would, um, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that would have have wise insights on that. What From, from my vantage point, you know, as, as working with children and, and families in the U.S. foster system and, and related uh, needs, I would say, you know, in the short run, if there's a child that is lacking the protection and care of family, that, that child is immensely vulnerable. Statistics show that the kids growing up without or, or living without the protection and care of family are some of the most vulnerable beings on our planet to everything from, mm. um, you know, forced labor to human trafficking, uh, to isolation, disease, all, all manner of things. And so I think the people of God, regardless of any of the kind of the back political issues or those things, um, uh, they, we are, we are called to be that, that temporary protection and care uh, for a child in that situation. And, you know, again, that's, that's the short run answer. If there's a child without the protection of family, God's people are invited to step into that need. Um, in the long run, one of the things that I would emphasize is that, um, a lot of the immigration that's happening uh, is tearing families in Central America apart. Um, having uh, we, my family and I lived in uh, El Salvador and Guatemala for for a, a six months a, a few years ago, and there were so many families there where the father had left. Um, or, or other situations where the family had been torn apart, uh, looking for work or looking for opportunity or other, other things going north. But what was left was a wreckage of, of children growing up without mm. their father, particularly boys. And, and so I, I really believe that the, in the long run, the core answer has to be in, in helping strengthen communities, um, including business opportunities and job opportunities within these Central American countries. And one of the big pieces to that, there's multiple, but one of the biggest pieces to that is, is helping to um, deal with the security issues there, particularly with the gangs. So many good people in El Salvador, Guatemala, and the surrounding countries live in constant fear of the gangs. And so um, mm -hmm. until you can deal with the security situation, it's going to be very hard to deal with creating uh, businesses and, and job opportunities. And un until you can create job opportunities, then people are always going to be streaming north looking for uh, the, the, uh, the income of jobs. And so, you know, I, that's mm -hmm. obviously those are very deep waters. And, and I would not consider myself a foremost expert on these things by any stretch. But I, that, sure. that would be from my limited perspective where we need to go. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sad just from an you know, observer looking at what's going on and hearing the stories. And it's just really compelling as to, you know, we there's so much we should be doing to help. And sometimes I'm just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what, you know. So if someone, and I know you're not the leading expert at this, but if someone would say, hey, what can I do? What organizations should I contact? What would you say? Well, you know, there's a number of organizations, uh, including Bethany Christian Services, uh, which is a member of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, that are actually facilitating some of the short-term foster care for unaccompanied minors. And so uh, reaching out to, to Bethany or another one that, that might be in your region would be one opportunity. Um, I know that, you know, they do work actually in Maryland, uh, where you're based mm -hmm. and um, other places. So that, that would be one option. I think they also have, you know, opportunities for, for volunteering and serving in other ways. Although I, you know, I, I there's because of background checks and security issues, you know, that's, there, there's not always a lot of um, volunteers allowed in some of the facilities and things like that. And so uh, I would, sure. I would recommend, you know, that'd be one route, you know, connecting with the yeah. organizations that are serving uh, these children and, and in some cases their families um, where, where we are. But then the, the other is, you know, there are many great organizations who are doing economic development um, and, and serving and helping families within Central American countries. And I think that that is um, an equally uh, worthy and important part of the picture as well. Hmm. So what, so thinking and, and, and looking at the state of orphans and, and vulnerable children around the world and other areas, what, what kind of stands out to you? Where are the really, you know, desperate situations? What, what's going on around the world? Yeah. Well, you know, in, in some ways, you know, you can point to hot spots, um, you know, particularly, for instance, Africa, where, where HIV, at least, you know, if you look back, a, a, you know, a decade or two, really ripped out the fabric of traditional society. So you, you had a whole generation of fathers and mothers um, 
dead. And so you had grandparents caring for grandchildren, but but uh, the traditional African means of caring for an orphan, which, you know, being absorbed into the extended family, uh, at, the, at the very case, many cases, that social fabric was torn, in some cases just ripped to shreds. And there's some healing that's happening there, but uh, but it's still extremely difficult. And in, in particularly in urban areas, there's high concentrations of children growing up apart from families, uh, whether on the streets or in other situations. And so on, on one level, you could say certain regions of the world have um, particularly pressing need. But I, I would just really emphasize, you know, as every child who's growing up apart from the protection and care of a family is one of the most vulnerable beings on our planet. And uh, there are children that fit that description in, in every country in the world, including our own. And uh, and I believe that God calls his people to be the first answer for those children. Um, and it's going to look different in each place. The, the needs are unique. You know, there's in some cases, for instance, in, in a number of African countries and many other places, there there are uh, surviving relatives or perhaps even biological parents who, with some support, um, that child can return to to be with them. And uh, and so that's you know that's always the ideal. If we can reunite biological families, mm-hmm. that's that's the first and best option. But of course, even in those places and in many other places in the world too, there are you know situations where kids cannot safely return to biological family. Um, Certainly not in the short run and maybe maybe never. And so in those cases, working to encourage local uh, systems that enable children to find new families through local adoption, if, if possible, or internationally, if it's not uh, if there's not families readily available um, in a timely manner in that local place and and, and other services that enable uh, really the local church to be the first answer for the, the people of that country, um, that, that really becomes a, a wonderful expression of the same heart that's lived out here in the United States in foster care. Hmm. Hmm. So I know in every industry, there are bad players. What are some red flags that people should look for when considering showing support for an organization? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, the, the reality is that, um, you know, any good cause can attract bad actors because if if someone perceives, hey, you know, if I, I will be perceived as compassionate, I can raise donations, um, you know, that, that can draw bad actors into a particular field. And certainly caring for orphans would, would be one of those. Um, and, you know, and in some cases, they're bad actors where they're literally trying to take advantage of or traffic kids or just truly, you know, raise funds with their pictures and then pocket all the money themselves. And in other cases, they're well-meaning, but they're, you know, perhaps um, by creating an orphanage and then needing to fill it so as to get more donations, they'll take kids out of families where, where, where they actually could, uh, with a little bit of support, be raised within biological family mm-hmm. or kin. And so both of those are situations to look out for. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, I would, I would recommend, you know, as the Christian Alliance for Orphans, we have um, a membership process where uh, we can feel a high degree of confidence in the integrity and trustworthiness and fiscal management of these member organizations. And so, you know, if an organization is a member of the Christian Alliance for Orphans, uh, you know, I think or- churches and donors can feel confident in working with them and giving through them. And, uh, and, and even as I say that, though, I'd say every organization has ways in which it can grow and improve and, uh, mm-hmm. and enhance the quality of the work it's, it's doing. And so that's a big par- part of why CAFO exists as well, so that we can all learn and grow together to continually uh, improve the quality of care we provide for, for children and, and for struggling families. Hmm. So it, it seems like, you know, being in, immersed in this can be really daunting, can perhaps even be depressing. What are some of those stories and situations that you've heard that give you hope? Mm. Yeah, that's, that is so true, Conrad. And, and I think uh, I will say this first, you know, I, I have seen many individuals and, and I think I would include myself in this in some way, ways who have waded into this work, you know, inspired and wanting to make a difference and, um, you know, having been moved deeply by, uh, you know, a particular story or particular child they've known and the heartbreak of that child losing the protection of parents and then growing up on the streets or in an orphanage and being taken advantage of by, uh, you know, unscrupulous adults. And and so we're moved into this by, by, 
uh, duty or by idealism or perhaps by guilt, whatever is moving us into it. And then we, as we wade in, we, we imagine we're going to solve these problems. We're going to fix it all. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that the, the, the needs and the problems are often far more complex than we imagined and that the situations don't yield to our best efforts the way we, we had imagined they would. And so we could and, and can really lose our hope, our joy, our spark in this work. And, and that's why I just feel like it is so important that, um, that we, at our deepest level, be motivated in this work, not by duty or by guilt or by idealism alone, Although those things may have their place, but if they are not going to carry us the distance when things get really tough and things will get really tough. And mm-hmm. it's, it's what, what carries us the distance is if, if we say, you know, God himself has loved me and pursued me and drawn me into his family and his love has been poured out into my life. And so my desire is simply to go and do likewise that, uh, you know, we love because he first loved us. And so that that really does need to be the wellspring or we're just going to become mm-hmm. a cyn- cynical, burned out, um, you know, mm-hmm. folks, whether working in the field or advocates in Washington, D.C. Or, or otherwise. But when we have that as our wellspring, when we when we are loving simply because we have been loved first and, and then God invites us to, to go and do likewise, then when things are, are wonderful and we're seeing the success that we hope for, wow, we can just rejoice and celebrate in that. And when things are tough and not not all we'd hoped, we can still say, I'm going to continue to love just with that same perseverance with which God continues to love me, even at, you know, in, in the moments when, when I'm not responding in the way I would hope. And, and so, um, yeah, so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a great thought there, um, and 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 it's just so important, I think, for all of us to to grasp. Conrad, you asked about you know in, encouraging stories, and I, you know I will say um, one of the things. I mean, I, I'm seeing many churches in many different parts of the world stepping up for the orphans of that place. I was in Guatemala last fall, and uh, there was a conference. More than 800 Guatemalans had gathered in Guatemala City, saying, "We want to be God's first answer for the orphans of this place." And uh, that encouraged wow. my heart so much. They weren't, you know, they're, while they're certainly still welcoming the help of uh, American and other Western donors, and, and there's wonderful partnerships to be had there, they're also saying, we're not just going to wait for people to come in from the outside and solve our needs here. We, as the body of Christ in Guatemala, want to be the first answer for that. And so that just gives me joy. And I see that mm-hmm. happening in Kenya and in Russia and Ukraine and, and many other parts of the world as well. And, uh, and it's the same spirit that I'm seeing in many local churches, whether some, you know, in some cases, big mega churches, others, very small house churches or everything in between in the United States that are saying kind of the same thing. Hey, we're going to be the answer for the kids in the foster system in our county, in our zip code. Mm. We're not going to be overwhelmed by these huge national statistics. We're going to count the number of kids in our zip code, and we want to be the answer for them as a church. And so that just inspires my heart as well. Yeah, I've seen that personally in Ukraine and the work that I've been privileged to do and be a part of, to seeing the local folks there on the ground, just really having a passion and compassion for these kids and and working with them. So it's exciting to see that. Definitely. Um, so on, on a, a little bit of a different uh, note here, on a personal level, what do you do to keep yourself motivated, inspired, encouraged with you and your family and that kind of thing? What what what? What's the process there? Yeah. yeah, that's that's a great question because it as we were talking about a moment ago, it's it is so easy to um, become weary in doing good, uh, to become exhausted, mm-hmm. to be to be spent. Um, I think in the story in in the gospels where uh, the woman with the bleeding disease reaches out and touches Jesus in the crowd, uh, as, as you may remember, and, and you know he he turns yeah. around and he says, you know, who touched me? And people said, oh, you know, of course, someone, you know, tons of people touched me. He said, no, I I know that someone touched me because power has gone out from me. And that that phrase, power has gone out from me, I think that really is the essence of all ministry, that in one way or another, yeah. whether, uh, you know, working for the physical healing of others or emotional healing, or just sitting with them through grief that they have experienced, there is some form of life and energy that it pours out from us by God's grace to others. And, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, Jesus modeled it for us, and it's what we're called to do, whether whether we're adoptive or foster parents or mentors or running an organization or volunteering. Um, it's, it is, but life is flowing out from us. And so if, if life is not flowing in, 
at that same rate, if we're not turning to God and with our hands open to receive the fresh life that he intends to give us, then we will run dry. And, and I, I've experienced that myself. I've seen it in many others in this field. And so uh, having habits and practices that sustain us for the long journey are truly essential. Hmm. Wow. And so what are some of those, those practices that you do? Yeah, well, I would, I would point to several and that, um, that, that really I and, and the, the whole CAFO team actually try to practice on a, on a daily, weekly and, and annual basis. And on a daily basis, that is the, the, the first moments of the day before I will turn on my smartphone and allow, um, you know, others or advertisers or news people or any other people to determine what my first thoughts of the day are. I leave my phone on airplane mode and I want to spend the first moments of the day in the presence of my good father. And uh, in, in scripture, in prayer, um, in perhaps journaling or memorizing scripture, but um, to, to do that each day. And other people may do it at different times of the day, although I think there's a certain special gift to do it as the very first thing before any other thoughts come crowding in, before technology starts binging and bleeping at us. And, uh, and so I would, I would say that would be one, is having time with our Father each day. Weekly, I would really, really encourage a practice of Sabbath. And uh, not in a legalistic sense that, uh, you know, that we're somehow uh, that God's mad if we don't take a day of weekly Sabbath. But I, I really believe that it's a gift that he wants to give to us. He's saying it's kind of like someone saying, I have the keys to a, a vacation home, a beautiful vacation home on the coast. And I want to give you these keys. And and he's you know, he's not necessarily he's not going to be mad if we don't take it. But we're missing out if we don't receive that gift. And sure. I and I, yeah. so I, I believe that gift is is to receive a day that that d- does not have any uh, thing on our to do list on it, that we literally make this sacred and we put walls on either side of that day. For me, that starts usually at sundown on Saturday and goes to sundown on Sunday. And during that 24 hours, um, I'm instead of work, I'm instead receiving the gifts of of worship and of rest and of play. So those three things, rest, worship, and play, that's what that time is for. That's what God wants to give us as his children. And again, we don't have to do this, but he's intending uh, this gift for us. And I would say I struggle with this because so often I feel like, oh, my to-do list is so long. How can I possibly, possibly afford to take this time? I almost feel like I'll be more rested if I keep working because at least mm-hmm. then my my to-do list will be shorter at the end of it, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the reality is when I do make that choice and, and my wife, Rachel, and I have gotten into that rhythm and and really, for the most part, kept it for the last uh, more than more than 15 years now. Um, it is the, the the highlight of the week. And those walls that hold out the to-do list, they create a space inside that really does feel sacred. And it feels sweet in a way that no other time does because it is it is almost a different experience of time. And, uh, and so I would commend that, especially to those who are in justice and mercy work, who are pouring themselves out. This is one of the prime ways that God wants to pour into us. Boy, that's so that's so valuable information and, and encouragement. So thank you for that. And that's something that I've I do in a way, but I I can certainly have a long way to go to really make that a uh, absolute priority in my life. And so that's a that's great encouragement. So thank you. So what are some of the books or who are some of the leaders or people that have most influenced you along mm. the way, along your journey? Yeah, well, one you know that I've I've really valued a lot is Dallas Willard. Um, he uh, was a he was the chair of the philosophy department at USC, recently deceased, um, but just uh, an amazing legacy of of being a very very thoughtful, wise, engaging the broader world, the broader culture, but at the same time, um, really rooting everything he did. In a, in a vision for the kingdom of God. And, and seeing the kingdom, which, which Jesus talked about more than any other theme, is, um, you know, the kingdom is where God's good purposes, his will, are breaking forth into this broken world. And, you know, anywhere God's will is perfectly, fully carried out, that's where his kingdom is. And so, you know, heaven is the kingdom of God, but we also pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we're aligning our uh, will and our work with God's will, uh, that's where the kingdom of God breaks forth. Uh, 
And, uh, and that's, to me, it's just an exciting and, and beautiful vision. And that's what I see the work of the Christian Alliance for Orphans being about, is that we're seeking to bring the kingdom of God uh, to break forth in the lives of struggling children, orphans, uh, broken families, and to bring the healing and restoration that God intends. And so I feel like Dallas Willard articulates that so well. He also speaks a lot about the spiritual practices and disciplines that that, that sustain us and underlie uh, the heart transformation that hap- has to happen in us before we can be bearers of the kingdom. So I, I value that. If I, you know, just as a starter, he, he can be quite heady and substantive. And so I, there's a book, though, that's called Renovation of the Heart in Daily Practice. And uh, it's a very okay. accessible volume, quite slender, but but it really gives a good, um, you know, just exposure and, and introduction to the, the big ideas that Dallas Willard shares. So I'd, I'd highly commend that. Going further back in history, I've, I've just loved George MacDonald. And many people haven't heard of him, maybe have read some of his fairy tales and stories like The Princess and the Goblin or The Princess and Kurt. Curdy. Um, but he, he, even if we've never heard of him, he has had a proud, profound impact on most of us through C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, J.R.R. Tolkien, and others who considered him kind of their prime forefather uh, and looked to him and his ideas and uh, as, as profoundly shaping in their thinking and writing. And, uh, and, and so as I've gotten to know George MacDonald more directly over the past uh, 10 years or so, reading a number of his biographies and his, some of his writings and poetry and sermons and and uh, works, I've found a, a man that embodies not just some of these ideas, you know, he's, he's a great thinker, those things, but but he lived this, he embodied that sweetness and the joy uh, that I want to live with. And and as he grew older, mm-hmm. um, he, he became more childlike. And I think that's one beautiful thing that I think, oh, man, what a wonderful thing to think of. You know, I'm, I'm 44 now, but what if I'm 54? When I'm 64, I'm much more childlike mm-hmm. than I am now, that I'm, my eyes are brighter, that I'm more joyful, that I'm more sensitive, and I cry easier at things that are deserve tears, either tears of joy or tears of sorrow, that I'm um, more delighted in sunrises and in, in the beauty of God's creation, all those things. I think George MacDonald grew that way. I want to as well. Hmm. Very cool. So a couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, one, what are some of the, the big life lessons you've learned over the years? And you've kind of talked about that a little bit, but maybe what's one that really stands out? Yeah. Well, you know, certainly one is one that we talked on earlier, which was just the idea that, you know, life to the full that Christ hmm. promised that he invites us to isn't found out there in some far off place. It's found right hmm. in the ordinary place where we are right now, learning to live fully for him and to love our neighbors well um, amidst ordinary life. Now, eventually God may call us to some far off place, but we can't imagine that just for instance, by, hey, I'm gonna become a missionary and move to Timbuktu, that that is somehow gonna transform our heart Mm -hmm. and make us more useful for the kingdom. It's just gonna change our location, but but we can, we Mm -hmm. very much can be just as grumpy as and self-absorbed in Timbuktu as we are here. Yeah, we carry ourselves with us, don't we? Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And so if we haven't learned to love our neighbor well here, we're we're really not gonna do it well there. And in fact, I think it actually may amplify some of our uh, selfishnesses and, and quirks uh, mm-hmm. to be in some far off place. So that that would be uh, mm-hmm. maybe number one. But closely related to that is just the reality that the biggest decisions we have to make are not these big decisions about where we're going to live or even what job we'll take. Um, you know, those things that we consider the big decisions, the biggest decisions we make are these small decisions we make every day about how am I going to respond to this person in front of me who's uh, really irritating me? How am I going to respond to the driver who cuts me off? How am I going to respond when um, someone asks me for money on the street? You know, am I going to walk away and not look at them? Am I going to slip the money but not give them eye contact? Or maybe not give them money but look them in the eye and start a conversation with them? Um, you know, how will I respond to my spouse when... Uh, when they're going through a really hard time and, and maybe being a little bit selfish, how am I going to respond to that in love and in self-giving? Those decisions, those are the most important decisions in life. So on a kind of a, on a on a personal level, when the movie about your life is made, what would the log line be? You know, when, when no. I first saw you were going to ask that, I, I thought to myself, man, I don't know if I want to come up with something there. I feel like I'm getting to live in a wonderful story that God is writing. And I, I don't know that I'm going to know the log line to this point by any stretch. But I would say what I might hope for uh, would it be a phrase, something like an outpost of hope. You know, mm. and I just see so much ache and hurt in this world. And, uh, 
And so being an outpost of hope, being an outpost of God's grace amidst, amidst that hurt, uh, I would love for that to be said uh, of me and my family and the, and the wonderful people I get to work with at CAFO. I really like that. That, and I think what you have done over the course of your life so far is has been that, has been an outpost of hope, just from what I've been able to see from, from my vantage point. Mm, and, uh, thank you, so, Conrad. Yeah, that's great. That's great. What's the, what's the next big thing for you? Well, you know, we're really excited about uh, the, what's called the more than enough vision, uh, working across the United States with, with Christian churches and organizations all over the country towards a shared goal, which is by 2025 to see that there are more than enough loving families for every child in foster care. And that would include adoptive families, biological families that have been restored, as well as foster families. It's, it's all three. And then the churches supporting those families, wraparound wrap support. And I know, you know, there's a lot of big visions and goals out there. This is one of those that actually is achievable. We really could get to the place where there are more than enough loving homes for every kid in foster care, where there's there really is more families waiting for children than children waiting for families. And that that is a thrilling thought uh, for the church to be known for that kind of thing, for the people uh, of, the, of the country to look on and say, hey, there may be some things I don't like about those Christians, but man, they are the ones that hmm. welcome in kids that no one else wants. Man, I would love for the church to be known for that kind of thing. That would be incredible. I mean, you know, in, in the society, in the world that we live in today, I think that kind of thing would just be you know, really what Christ asked us to do, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's who we're supposed to be. Yeah. And yeah. And it's who so, he is towards us, right? He has welcomed absolutely. us first. So we can just give a small, humble reflection of that. Absolutely. Well, it's been a just a wonderful privilege to spend this time talking with you and, and about what you do and about the work that uh, the important work that you're doing and leading from around the world. How can people contact you or your organization? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, well, you know, kfo.org, so C-A-F-O dot org is our website. And of course, there's doorways from there into all manner of uh, different ways to engage from, you know, global work, wonderful organizations doing tremendous work all over the world uh, to U.S. foster agencies and, and many of the uh, things that we do together through KFO. So our annual conference, the summit where, where you and I first uh, met and uh, many other things as well, monthly webinars and training and support for churches that are trying to build this wraparound support for adoptive and foster families and, and many other things as well. So certainly would welcome anyone to visit us there. And there's a there's an info um, email address that's accessible on the, the site. If anyone has questions or desires help in any particular area, uh, that's what we're here for. Awesome. Very good. Well, Jed, it's been a, a wonderful experience to, to talk with you. And thank you so much for coming on the My Story podcast. I really appreciate your time and uh, the effort to do this. Mm, my, my joy, Conrad. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about things that matter. So that's the show for today. Thank you, Jed, for taking time to talk to us today. I really enjoyed our conversation and look forward to hearing more about what you are doing and what CAFO is doing here in the U.S. and around the world. Hey, be sure to come back next week for my special interview with Michael O. Seibel. Michael is a, an accomplished filmmaker, director, producer, and a writer. He's worked in Hollywood and on a number of major films and has worked with organizations like the Billy Graham Association and others. He's produced documentaries about Chuck Colson, about uh, Zamperini, and it's a fascinating interview and a look at what goes on in Hollywood and kind of his path to uh, what he's doing today. And so be sure to check it out next week right here on the My Story podcast. The music on today's show is from my friend Drew Davidson. You can get all his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. Last, if you have an idea for the show, an interview you'd like to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast. <laughs>